the world of big data. Uh, so we'll be introducing all of them in turn as they're getting up to speak. Uh, so I'm going to ask your indulgence, and, and we'll, we'll introduce you as we, we sort of bring them to the stage. Um, we have sort of a series of short talks. I'll likely uh, be interrogating each of the speakers as they come off stage, as they're awkwardly making their ways back to the seats, blinded by the Klieg light up there. While you are thoroughly under surveillance, we're going to ask you difficult questions. And then as we get through uh, those three opening presentations, we're going to open this up, turn it into a question and answer. You'll see that uh, there are microphones on the stairs, so we should be able to have a good discussion around this. Um, the theme that we're putting forward here uh, is this question of surveillance. We've, we've posited this idea uh, that we are unquestioningly entering uh, our, a realm of increased surveillance. And I think like everything else, we may uh, want to problematize that. I think one of, for me, the most interesting things about the hope of a more digitized and digitally mediated age was that we might actually have pressure in the other direction. Uh, folks like Steve Mann suggesting surveillance and the idea that once we all have cameras, perhaps we can watch the folks in power. Uh, and while that's an encouraging and cyber-utopian idea, it seems downright naive now that we're at a point where there's such an incredible push, both in commercial, government, and academic communities, for a new form of total information awareness around this idea idea of big data. Uh, And you end up now with responses to the sort of culture of big data that can actually look sort of marginal and defensive, uh, almost in response. Uh, Ideas that are are thoughtful and poetic, like a right to be forgotten that we're starting to see uh, come up under EU jurisdiction that basically says, yes, I realize all of my movements are going to be watched. Yes, I know that my entire social life online is going to be tracked. But could you please, after analyzing me, building me into your model, at some point eventually allow me to be forgotten, at least in point. So... um, we might see this as a pervasive cultural surveillance. We might also say perhaps this isn't something we should be really all that worried about. In fact, that seems to be what much consumer behavior is around this. Please, I'm happy to have my relationships on Facebook. I'm happy to have them analyzed for advertisers or search via graph search. Just keep it free so I don't have to pay for it in one fashion or another. Um, At the end of the day there's this interesting reminder that big data is basically data about all of us. We are generating a data set sitting in this room. Everyone here with a mobile phone turned on is showing up as a point, perhaps for someone's future analysis. And it's interesting to think about what are the positives and negatives we might be getting out of this surveillance trade-off. There's a lovely paper that just came out analyzing a year's worth of mobile phone data Uh, for the city of Abidjan in the Ivory Coast. Uh, And the analysts who've looked through this at IBM have crunched it, and they figured out a way, theoretically, possibly, to get a 10% efficiency increase in Abidjan's bus routes, which on the one hand is a very promising thing. It would be very nice if Abidjan's bus routes ran a little bit better. On the flip side, big data at the moment is sort of promising major innovations in health, major innovations in governance, and if the answer is a possible 10% innovation, if only we could actually get everyone to subscribe to our recommendations, maybe there's a substantial gap between the promise and the reality that raises questions about what these trade-offs around surveillance uh, are ones that we actually want to make or want to question further. 
We've got three extraordinary uh, folks with us here, all of whom have books that have gone after these questions uh, of surveillance in, in one fashion or another, either through cultural production or through uh, the, the very literal of, of looking at things uh, like biometric analysis. Uh, we're going to start with uh, Goran Bolin uh, of Media Communication Studies at uh, Södertörn University in Sweden. Um, he is the author of Value and the Media, Cultural Production and Consumption in Digital Markets. He's got some great ideas that he wants to share with us around mass marketing and mass personalization and how we're starting to see the emergence of algorithmic surveillance. So I hope you'll join us. Thank you. So, um, thank you, Ethan, and uh, thanks to the organizers also for inviting me to speak on this panel. Uh, this uh, quote, this is actually a quote from mass marketing to mass personalization, is from a, a British uh, marketing agency called Alturian, uh, who has, uh, what I think, also quite nicely captured uh, a um, tendency within uh, media. And communication. Uh, so what I'm going to talk about uh, today uh, is uh, a sort of a setup for a wider discussion on surveillance. Surveillance, of course, can, can deal with, uh, with uh, uh, different uh, surveyors, uh, I mean, uh, from governments to, to corporate business. And I'm going to talk more about the corporate business type of surveillance. And I uh, understand that other panelists will talk about uh, uh, other aspects. So, so what I want to talk about is uh, how we can think around what it means to be a media users, and we are all media users, uh, of course, uh, in the digital uh, environment. Uh, so, uh, what I want to start about talk, say something about business models, and then in the second part, uh, talk more about audiences uh, slash media users. So, uh, when it comes to business models, just shortly. Uh, there are, uh, as I see it, three different kinds. Uh, the first kind being, being the, the uh, traditional where the producer uh, sells a text and gets money in return. Uh, so you have uh, the newspaper business, the, the, uh, the um, literature business, books, uh, of course, are this. But also cinema going. Cinema is, is uh, you could describe as uh, you are... You get the opportunity to take part of uh, a cinematic experience. You cannot take the actual celluloid film at, at this time. <laughs> it was celluloid. It's not that anymore, of course. Uh, you cannot take that with you uh, home, but you can take your experience home with you. And you have paid for doing so. So this is a text-based model uh, uh, for the media business. Uh, but... Uh, we also have the audience-based model, of course, where, where uh, uh, media producers sell their audiences to advertisers, the television industry. This, of course, also uh, starts in the press. Uh, and in the press, as you know, we have a, also mixed, uh, a, a mixing of this model. So it's an integration of the, the uh, audience model with the uh, textual model. You pay for... Uh, a copy of a, a, a newspaper, for example, but you are also sold as a, a news reader because to the advertisers who advertise. And the uh, 
uh, quota between that uh, differs. I mean, this wasn't originally so. In Sweden, when, uh, uh, when they started to have advertising in the press, you couldn't have the same advertisement two days in a row because then it wasn't news. So even advertisements had to have the quality of uh, some kind of news value to it. This was soon abandoned because of the, uh, the uh, incentives to, to uh, economic incentives, of course. So these are, are the two, two, two basic models of, of mass communication, you could say. But you also have a third quite old model, model uh, business model, which is based on a service. Uh, the telephone service, for example. Or even older than that, you have the postal service. I mean, these are basically the two, uh, two early examples of... Uh, 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 networks for user-generated content because the telephone companies don't, don't, they don't fill these uh, lines with content. We do as, as users of these services. Uh, we send mails uh, uh, or we did send mail in the pre-digital era uh, uh, and paid for a stamp uh, to use this infrastructure for communication with distant others. So these are three, uh, the, as I see it, the three basic business models that we have dealt with historically. And of course, what we have seen uh, in the digital world is an integration of these three models. So we uh, both pay subscriptions, fees, etc., but we also and pay for content, but we also are sold. Uh, our use of that content is, uh, and our patterns of behavior are sold to uh, third parties, etc. Uh, and we also pay for network for cable access uh, and uh, everything else. So, so uh, this was uh, quite shortly about uh, the business models. Now, I think it's quite important to distinguish between, uh, or I used to distinguish between media users and audiences. Uh, audiences then being the uh, commodity that is packaged uh, by um, media companies and uh, sold to advertisers, uh, whereas the media users are the social subjects uh, who actually take part. And we also all are those social subjects, of course. So the the audience uh, is a statistical representation, uh, an aggregated commodity, uh, and uh, has really no agency. Uh, It is rather worked upon by the, the, uh, adver- uh, the um, uh, marketing departments of media companies, etc. Uh, so it's constructed by statisticians uh, into a commodity, into a package that can then be circulated on the market. Uh, so this is, this is based in principle of mass market, marketing and audiences has traditionally then been constructed through sociological variables such as uh, age, uh, sex, uh, education, uh, uh, where you live, etc. Uh, uh, for uh, since long. Uh, social subjects, on the other hand, of course, have agency and uh, they, are, they come into being uh, for themselves uh, as opposed to in themselves, if you make that distinction. Uh, so they are also self-perceived in, 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 uh, in that sense. Uh, but we, social subjects, of course, can, can compare uh, their media use with the statistical aggregate because that's a point of reference there. I mean, a representation is also a representation of something. So, so it represents back to the media users. And we can, uh, uh, when we see the, the uh, statistics of media use, we can say, well, 
Well, I differ a bit from that. Uh, I'm not really that old. I am younger than that or, or uh, whatever. Uh, there is a point of orientation in the, the social world. And uh, some of these characteristics we can change. I mean, we can change our income. We can change where we live, etc. Uh, uh, some of these uh, characteristics are harder to uh, influence. I mean, it's, it's much harder to... to uh, although it is possible to change sex. And some of us... Uh, fight uh, the, uh, the uh, aging process and try to, to appear as younger than we are, etc. You all know that. But that, that, there is a sort of a point of reference, how we reference ourselves to, to statistical aggregates in that sense. In the, the uh, uh, digital world, we, the, we follow other principles of audience construction. So this is uh, the principles of mass personalization, uh, as uh, we know it. Uh, and this is not based in, uh, in uh, sociological parameters, but rather in behavioral characteristics such, such as consumer choice and geolocation and, and uh, other behavioral patterns, as, as the German... Uh, Marketing agency Nagad says every click is pure DNA. So we get, so they work on these metaphorical um, ideas that they sort of uh, uh, suck the DNA out of our uh, our behavior and and then construct it, package this behavior and sell to advertisers. And it's also of course. Uh, based in predictability that you can predict how users. Uh, um, how move around in, in digital space. This is a much harder uh, aggregate to compare with for the social uh, media user uh, because the reference point uh, is more complex and harder to, it's much harder to, uh, to, uh, uh, to uh, grasp the uh, complexity of all these parameters that the algorithms produce because very few of us have, have uh, that knowledge of how, how this actually uh, comes into being. We, we get the sense, we know when we, we go to Amazon that we are targeted and we get suggestions for books, but the exact uh, measure of how we, we, we are constructed, our behavior is sort of turned into this commodity, is, is much more uh, complex. So, uh, uh, but, but this, uh, of course, we know that, and this is also what um, uh, Turov have, has called niche envy. It produces a kind of niche envy because, because of price differentiation to different consumer groups. This is when we discover why, how, how these uh, algorithms work, so if we do. Uh, but there, there, there are such moments, of course. And this, uh, uh, arguably, and this is what I would like to uh, put up for discussion. Uh, the, what we, we could discuss how does this affect our perception of ourselves as media users uh, when we are faced with this complexity. Uh, and uh, in a later session later today, I will give some examples. I don't have the time in this panel, but, but there are some examples you can do on how people negotiate uh, with this, these complexities. 
But so there are uh, most people are of course aware of that we are being uh, targeted uh, uh, by advertising. We are constructed. Our behavior is is traced on on the uh, in in digital space. Uh, we don't know really how this information is used. We know that it's uh, probably not good for us. But on the other hand, it has its upsides because we can connect with friends. We can do do all. all all other sorts of, of, of things. And, and this is my last uh, and closing point, uh, since it's not me as a social subject, me as a, a, uh, a man living in Sweden, Stockholm, uh, being in his uh, early 50s and uh, uh, having, being a, a professor, uh, an academic professor, etc., all these parameters that are sociological, uh, since it's, it's not really me that is uh, is uh, targeted for advertising it's not it's not me that is the basis for uh, for this uh, construction in in digital uh, markets but my computer rather and we can see interesting things when we have uh, changed computers my one of my daughters for example shared the spotify she doesn't want to open the spotify account so she shared that, that with me which should make up an interesting mix for those who try to analyze this pattern of behavior and uh, of course we know that that there are these in a, uh, what is imprecisions in in uh, in uh, big data uh, but I don't think that matters very much to those who package this and sell this information because what they sell is information. This information gets further detached from the social subjects and take on a sort of a life of its own. And as long as this market as a system of belief, as already John Kenneth Galbraith said that any market is, uh, so long as everybody, the buyer and the seller of this information, believe that this uh, the value of this uh, commodity is worth this and that much, many dollars or Swedish crowns or whatever, uh, then this market will survive. So, so I don't think that's, that my sharing my, the Spotify account with my daughter is uh, a big problem for those producers of these uh, algorithmic data. And on that note, I end my talk. Thank you. Gorm, let, let me ask you a quick question before we, we let you sort of get off the spot. And uh, remember, again, I'm going to ask one quick question. I'm going to let everyone ask questions after we sort of uh, go through three presentations. You hinted at this idea that we're all aware at the moment that we're being targeted. Um, and you've given this sort of example of this way in which you and your daughter are uh, conspiring uh, it, in a completely harmless way, perhaps, to, to evade the targeting. When we're aware of this targeting, do you think many of us are responding? Is it changing our behavior? Are we seeing ourselves as under surveillance, as being targeted by this behavior, or are the responses uh, uh, less dramatic than that? Uh, that varies, I would say, with, uh, with uh, individuals, uh, because uh, some are more sensitive to being targeted and some find the upsides uh, sort of so much more... Um, 
uh, valuable than the downsides. So, so, and this is what I mean by the negotiation uh, within each and every media user that you have to sort of, and and some of course opt out, and some I wouldn't say that this is some sort of resistance that me and my daughter is, is engaged in. This it's it's more. more her, uh, on her initiative because she doesn't want to pay. <laughs> and she is that generation that doesn't want to pay and probably will be very hard to persuade to pay. Uh, so, so, but that, that will differ between individuals. Um, yeah. Well, that's, that's very helpful. I hope we'll get uh, to do more of that during the comments. Thanks so much. Um, I wanted to bring up next uh, uh, Kelly Bates. Uh, uh, Kelly Gates, sorry, not Bates. Let me get it right. I, I promised you that I would get everyone's name wrong. And I managed to get that wrong uh, successfully. Uh, she's Associate Professor in Communication and Science Studies uh, at UCSD. She's the author of Our Biometric Future, Facial Recognition Technology and the Culture of Surveillance. Uh, and she's bringing a topic that I know a lot of us uh, in this room are thinking a great deal about, uh, which is considering some of the calls for increased surveillance uh, in the wakes of the Boston Marathon bombings. So looking forward to hearing what you have to say. Do we need some help oh, you know switching what? screens? There we go. Did it happen? Excellent. Looks good. Okay, so um, we have instructions not to read, but I'm not going to follow those instructions. Um, I uh, will try to be conversational in my reading style. Um, as soon as the FBI released photos uh, and video of the bombing suspects after the uh, events here two weeks ago, we began hearing public expressions of gratitude for all the surveillance video at the disposal of investigators. In a post titled, We Need More Cameras and We Need Them Now, Farad Manju, a tech writer for Slate, seized the opportunity to make the case for the virtues of video surveillance. Uh, when you weigh cameras against other security measures, claimed Manju, they emerge as the least costly and most effective choice. The writer was voicing a sentiment widely felt, which may explain why he didn't see the need to support his claim with anything but uh, weak and dubious evidence. He made note of several studies, but he cited only one, conducted by the Justice Department's own Office of Community-Oriented Policing Services. To be fair, he acknowledged some of the potential problems with ubiquitous surveillance, like the idea that it, quote, feels wrong, nearly un-American. He also noted the potential for abuse and the fact that, combined with facial recognition technology, more video surveillance provides a recipe for government intrusion. While these aren't trivial issues, wrote Manju, he insisted that, quote, such abuses and slippery slope fears could be contained by regulations that circumscribe how the government can use camera footage. But then, citing the Justice Department's findings that the video surveillance system in D.C. hasn't had much impact on crime rates there, he, b he blamed precisely such regulations. The cameras likely haven't worked, he suggested, because their use has been too tightly regulated as a result of privacy fears. But the best reason to welcome a government network of surveillance cameras, he ultimately argued, is that we're already being watched. We might have had a useful discussion at some earlier moment about whether we wanted ubiquitous video surveillance, 
according to Manju, but we've missed that moment. So in other words, we don't have enough surveillance yet. We need more of it, and we need it now, but we've missed the moment to have a debate about it. So it doesn't take a brain surgeon of logic to poke holes in this kind of argumentation, and I don't really want to pick on um, this writer in particular. As I said, he's voicing a sentiment, a feeling, um, a much more a wider feeling among many people that using surveillance to catch people like the Sarnayev brothers um, is a desirable goal. Preferably, surveillance can help catch people with violent intentions before they commit um, before they do anything, and certainly afterwards if they're not prevented from acting. And the images of the Sarnayev brothers with backpacks in hand themselves provide ready justification for exactly what Manju is advocating, even more surveillance system coverage in major cities. How could one disagree with this? Um, it seems that arguing against more ubiquitous surveillance is tantamount to supporting the violence itself. I came across this article um, when a student posted it on my Facebook page, and she uh, asked a couple of questions when she did that. She said, is, surveillance, is more surveillance even possible, and what would that even look like? And I think these are good questions to raise because it's not clear that Farad Manju and others who believe that um, the event clearly demonstrates the need for more surveillance fully understands um, what exactly they're wishing for. So Manju seems to equate more surveillance with more cameras, but while more camera coverage in urban spaces is certainly one possibility, um, increasing the scale of surveillance systems and extending their reach is not simply a matter of increasing the number of cameras. It can also mean designing better cameras, like the powerful gigapixel devices being developed at a number of institutions, Duke University, UC San Diego, probably here at MIT. These visualizing instruments produce pictures with a vastly increased field of view, capable of capturing very high-resolution images of objects um, and people of distances of miles away. One engineer working on these high-powered cameras um, at UCSD explains that one of these devices can take an instant image of a half of a football stadium, 120-degree um, range, such that every face in the crowd is perfectly discernible. And he predicts that in the near future, cameras like these won't be distinguishable as distinct objects in, in the spaces of everyday life, and instead, they'll just be seamlessly integrated into buildings, infrastructures, aerial devices, and they'll just be inseparable from our surroundings. Compression and data storage will certainly still pose problems given the large amount of data these images contain. But as we've seen, data storage capacities have a tendency to grow exponentially in response to computing industry demand. Another big challenge with increasing the scale of surveillance and making it work more effectively is the problem of interoperability. So many different systems and no real technical standards. So this is true of many of the surveillance systems, all of them actually, that operate in cities and other spaces across the U.S. They're of widely varying system design. Um, everything from Sam's Club specials and sort of uh, <laughs> kind of systems that uh, a business owner might have put together with um, different generations of cameras, different kinds of recording devices, to much more sophisticated systems that high-value targets have, like banks and big companies that are installed by more qualified operators. But in any case, many different kinds of systems operating on very different kinds of proprietary systems. There's a recognized need among security um, types to develop protocols that will enable greater interoperability among a wide variety of these separately designed proprietary systems. 
much like the way that TCP/IP protocols enabled computer networks designed on very different hardware and software systems to interconnect. Protocols for making surveillance systems more interoperable are in development. And there's also a related problem with metadata standardization, this non-standardized metadata that's attached to images being generated by all of these different surveillance systems makes, them, makes the imagery very difficult to organize and, and retrieve effectively. So protocols for enabling distinct metadata dictionaries to communicate would make larger volumes of digital video more readily exchangeable and um, accessible among different um, systems. And these are just a couple of slides from, um, I'm not going to explain them, they're just, I pulled them from a presentation that I saw at UCSD by someone who's working on, he's not at UCSD, he's at a, a private defense contractor in Florida, working on this problem of developing um, KLV protocol as a way, he calls it key level, key length value protocols to enable different um, types of metadata and essence data um, interoperability. Uh, it would be like a, a layer of protocols that if different would just have to be adopted in order to make these systems um, more interoperable. So you might say that technical challenges with interoperability and the lack of standardized metadata are providing some of the last shreds of privacy we have left. And it does seem like only a matter of time before some of these technical challenges are surmounted. But as I've argued in my work, there's nothing inevitable about the um, future of surveillance. Technologies do not simply progress or become more sophisticated through a natural process of scientific advancement. Instead, the forms that new technologies take, including more advanced versions of existing systems, are the result of specific intentions and investments. As Bruno Latour has argued, many actors with different motivations and forms of expertise must come together and love a technological project for that technology to become a functioning reality. Better surveillance systems require political will and economic investment. They require technological ingenuity, user demand, and of course, they require public acceptance. Events like the Boston Marathon bombings introduce what Brian Winston calls supervening social necessities or accelerators that push technological projects forward. At these moments, forces that might suppress tech development are surmounted, like reasoned debate about costs, benefits, and potential consequences. Um, another set of developments that I wanted to just throw out there that I think are important to think about that I've been thinking about are um, different kinds of, a whole set of technologies designed for new techniques of bodily analysis for, uh, especially I'm very much interested in fMRI for deception detection. There's a, someone uh, named Melissa Littlefield at UIUC who's done a, written a great book on new deception tec detection techniques um, and also automated expression analysis. I think that these kinds of technologies are sort of uh, they, they are, um, they're especially suited to what Nigel Thrift calls microbiopolitics, to enabling the extension of biopower into more infinitesimal levels of analysis and bringing small spaces and times into visibility in order to enable kind of more detailed knowledge of the individual, and especially in this case, the self, to kind of expose the self, to be able to understand the self, to make it more um, amenable to kinds of different kinds of technological interventions. So um, uh, let me just wrap up. This is another kind of set of developments that I want to raise as things to think about when we're talking about more and better surveillance um, to unpack the black box of what that would mean. Um, one question worth asking about the Boston bombing case is whether surveillance video ultimately played a material role in apprehending the suspects. 
The images certainly had value in helping investigators publicly identify the Sarnayev brothers, and those images have evidentiary value in the case against them. But when considering precisely how the police pursuit played out, it's not clear whether the images themselves played much of a role. As is often the case in high-profile incidents, the symbolic function of the images is arguably more significant than their material value as investigative assets. The images and how quickly they appeared demonstrated the state's already significant surveillance capacity. Um, So if we do decide that we need more surveillance and we need it now, then another question that follows is what are the implications for privacy? And um, I have to admit that I'm kind of growing tired of this question, which is not to suggest that I, um, I don't think it's an important one. Uh, the, I think that the right to have a domain of privacy and autonomy free from government and corporate intrusion is critical for a functioning democracy. And the pursuit of ever more extensive surveillance is obviously threatening to whatever shreds of privacy we have left. However, I think that the privacy issue has to some extent become a red herring that obscures some other fundamental issues we should be talking about when it comes to the structural inequalities designed into our surveillance infrastructures. And I'm especially interested in questions like what is made visible and what is made invisible in the design of our monitoring systems. For example, if the national borders are monitored more closely than ever, then why are people dying in record numbers as they cross the Arizona desert? Why are companies that are built on profiting from personal data able to keep their own business practices from public view? And um, yesterday, Jonathan Zittrain suggested that we might uh, have a system where we get pinged with a warning when we're being recorded by someone's Google Glasses or in other cases. And I think that's a great idea, um, but I would also you know, wonder how that system will work. Would we also get pinged when we come into the field of view of the FBI, for example? Um, and who gets to get pinged and who doesn't? Do we want people like the Sarnayev brothers getting pinged when they're coming in the view, purview of the FBI um, field of view? So related to these structural inequalities is the fact that a whole set of global crises, political, economic, cultural, and environmental crises, are creating what we rather oversimplistically refer to as security issues, And as long as the source of these very complex security issues is located primarily, as we deem the source to be located primarily in the identities and bodies of others, the bad guys, the evildoers, the terrorists, then it's difficult to envision any solution other than a dysfunctional path toward more extensive surveillance and policing. If we've missed the moment to have these discussions, and the only argument we have is to defend our diminishing privacy rights, then I'm afraid that leaves the case against more surveillance as we, the weak is the case that Farad Manju makes in favor of it. Thank you. Thanks so much, Kelly. There's a, a lot of really helpful uh, provocations in, in that. I, I, you can sit down if you want. I remember okay, we're trying to we're trying to put you off balance. Stare directly into the light okay. as you make your way back to your seats as you try to parse the question. Um, so. I'm very sympathetic to your case that we could find a way to turn back from increased surveillance despite pressures coming in that are technological, that are governmental, that may be around societal acceptance. But I'm finding myself sort of looking for examples of moments where we've asked for less rather than more surveillance. So is there a good case where we can sort of look at a society collectively deciding that's too much and actually we want to move in the other direction? I don't know if there's a case of a whole society asking that question. I have a terrible 
example, which is the NRA and the gun rights lobby being very effective at preventing a registry of gun owners. They've deemed that to be something that is of utmost importance in terms of the privacy of gun ownership. Um, I don't want to say we should take a cue from that necessarily, but that to look, well, certainly to look at the contradictions in such an approach and to, again, to see where we do protect privacy and where we don't. Um, but a whole society going, I, I don't have examples of that. And I mean, I, but I still want to maintain the idea and the, the kind of, because I think that it's important to understand that more surveillance is not inevitable because the idea that it's inevitable sort of encourages us to just sort of acquiesce to it. I, I so think it's a I would, terrific example, right? I mean, there, um, there, there are all sorts of technological measures that have been designed and proposed as far as figuring out how to fingerprint uh, each slug coming out of a firearm that, that have ended up being resisted by a, a sociocultural decision that that wasn't a direction that we right. wanted to go in, which becomes very interesting at this moment. It'd be fun to find someone who's both in favor of increased surveillance and no tracking of weapons to make sure that we can have as much cognitive dissonance as, as possible around the idea of surveillance on the same stage. So uh, maybe we can look for that for the next gathering two years from now. I suspect we're, we're still going to be talking through some of these issues. Um, we're going to move over uh, to our third speaker, uh, Professor Josie Van Dyke, uh, a, a professor of comparative media studies at the University of Amsterdam, uh, author recently of The Culture of Connectivity, A Critical History of Social Media, uh, and I'm hoping that you're going to complicate for us this idea of human behavior uh, becoming data and what happens uh, when we go through that translation of datification. So, okay, thank please. you, Ethan. I hope do not disappoint you. So, um, uh, well, thank you very much for being here. I sort of do this on a whim. I'm not an expert in surveillance. I think uh, Kelly is much more of an expert than I am, but I will just give it a try. Um, surveillance actually is nothing new. And uh, yesterday, I, th I thought, think we t uh, talked a little bit about the panopticon. Well, you know, that's been around for hundreds of years. But I think the real issue that we're discussing now in terms of surveillance is not what surveillance is, but how it's being conducted. And Kelly just talked about, you know, video and how that is uh, being used and, uh, uh, you know, video data being used as surveillance uh, uh, technologies. So my qu the most relevant question, I think, these days is how, by what means, is surveillance taking place? So what I think what really changes the nature of the game of surveillance these days is that of datafication. And it's not a term that I have actually coined, but it's coined by Kenneth Neil Kakir and uh, Victor Meyer Schoenberger, which are very difficult names, but I hope I pronounced them well. Um, and they've just published this new, new book on big data. You can actually find it here in the uh, MIT bookstore. Um, they really see datafication as this new world-changing scientific paradigm. And I think to some extent they're right because many aspects of social life have been sort of coded and quantified. We talked a little bit about the quantified self yesterday that were never quantified or datafied before, like friendships or interests or casual conversations or anything that you search on the Internet. Everything, everything, you, you name it, it can be quantified or codified. Now... Actually, it's, it's really tremendous that people, you know, if they can get a hand on a Google Glass and they put it on, they, they, they're almost getting an orgasm out of that datafied layer that they're seeing, you know, and now perceiving the world with. It's really, 
I really think this is not simply a matter of datafication being a new scientific paradigm. It's almost a belief, uh, really an ideological belief in what we see is, you know, the data that we get. So I have actually several main concerns that I would like to raise and share with you today or really questions that spring to mind when reflecting on what I either call data, datafication or, you know, if it's becoming more of a belief, it's, I call it dataism. Um, and it is really sort of uh, profound to that notion of surveillance, I think. So a couple of questions. Actually, the first question I have is um, datafication thrives on the assumption that gathering data actually happens without a set purpose. Well, that, I think, is really a uh, um, sort of mischievous assumption because masses of data really lead to new methods of data analysis. But um, in fact, what we're doing is replacing what we used to have, you know, in terms of statistical, example, uh, um, uh, statistical examples or samples, I should say. We're replacing those samples or statistics with large amount of data. In fact, and this, I think, is a really nice quote from that book that I just uh, mentioned. Uh, large amounts of messy data replace small amounts of sample data. In fact, we're once... N used to be 1 or 40 or even 500. Now N is all. So everything, you know, we do, everything, how, you know, how we move, how we behave is, in fact, becoming data. Now, the sheer size of data should really compensate for its messiness. That's the implication of N is all. But in fact, gathering data never happens without a purpose. Or, and that's another book that I would like to recommend to you, which you can find here. Um, uh, it's never happening without a purpose. But raw data, and that's a book by Lisa Kittelman, she says raw data is in fact an oxymoron. And that, I think, data are never, you know, without a purpose. They're gathered with a purpose and they're repurposed or they're interpreted or reused with a certain purpose in mind. And that sort of the purpose of data in a certain format being reformatted into a new recontextualized context is something that we should be very aware of. So there is no such thing as data without a purpose. That brings me to my second point, which is... Big data struggles with the social. Um, what we do when we look at those big, massive quantities of data is, in fact, finding patterns. And finding patterns often happens on the basis of association or interpretation. And I think this new scientific paradigm of datafication is really some sort of, you know, a return to hermeneutics because what we're doing is we're looking at masses uh, of data and we're trying to interpret them. We, and I, I think this is a really um, interesting way of looking at it. You let data speak for themselves and you actually try to find patterns in those massive amounts of data. Whereas I think, you know, we're just simply looking for new ways of interpreting those massive amounts of data. And as I just said, those patterns do not simply appear. They do not simply, you know, occur by just looking at them. They're basically a, a projection of the questions that we ask to the data. More often than not, those questions that we ask are based on either ideological or political or technological assumptions of what those data mean in particular contexts. So the word, the word or the notion or the concept of terrorists or you know, whatever you want to sort of interpret from a mass of data depends on your ideological or whatever notion, your, the preset notion that you're 
uh, using to look at it. So that was my second point. Um, another point I want to make is um, we still know very little about the relationship between data and people. People are actually not their data, and neither are, you know, data are not people. So we really are struggling with this relationship between uh, people and their data. Um, actually, data are generated, for one thing, by platforms that are not neutral or in any sense like the utilities as, you know, they would like to present themselves as utilities. Well, they're not. They're generating and soliciting data with a preset purpose in mind. And then that's, of course, the kind of data that we gather. Now, people leave a lot of their data unconsciously, but without idea, any idea how it's going to be used. So, uh, and then what comes into play is a lot of sort of real-life performance that um, uh, data interpreters really can't do anything about. And I think Ethan just mentioned a couple of those things. Like, what if we were just um, sort of you know, pulling a leg with these, uh, with these data? What if we're, you know, we're into irony, we're into play, we're really putting up a performance? And that's the kind of thing, or are we simply making mistakes or letting our imaginations work? So if, for instance, you are looking, uh, because your daughter has to make a school project, you have to look up you know, terms like depression or multiple sclerosis, and you know, as a result, you get like numbers of personalized advertisements. I think that was that you were talking about, Goran. Um, personalized advertisements for treatments for depression of multiple sclerosis. This is really where the system, you, you know, it doesn't work. There is no relationship between how you were behaving on the internet and what you actually need in terms of, you know, personal advertisements. So that's another observation. Fourth, I think we really have a type of, well, we have sort of a misplaced trust in big data as a means to solve big problems. Um, huge massive uh, quantities of data have the ability, of course, to open up new vistas or to solve problems. But in fact, what they help us to do is really, in you know, most of the cases, solve very small problems or very small, as you mentioned, the example with the 10% less uh, uh, traffic, uh, the use of bu uh, buses in, uh, that in, was it in Ghana? Okay, African coast. So um, what we're really looking at is S uh, solving really small problems, very defined problems, rather than, you know, the big problems of the world. Um, fifth, I think this is one of the best-kept secrets of, uh, uh, of big data's predictive power. Um, we often assume that the more data we have, and now we come back to that N is all, and I think Kelly mentioned it, like, do we need more cameras? Do we need more surveillance? Well, the question, do we need even more data? about ourselves and what we do. Will that really uh, improve the surveillance methods that we have and the technologies? Um, a lot of the, well, basically the assumption is that the more data you have, the better you will be able to predict future human <coughs> behavior based on the patterns that you uh, algorithmically discover from those data. And that may be a me sort of a messed up logic because you know, people do not simply do what they're uh, expected to do or what they're predicted to do. Of course, people are creatures of habit. For, so a lot of, you know, f things that they do in the future, they're based on their past behavior and past patterns of behavior. But in a way, we're not just creatures of habit. We're also creatures of irony, of playful performance, of resistance, of... And 
in many ways, you know, things like intuition or a performative acts do not come into play when you think about the predictive power of uh, these technologies. In addition, I think prediction is also a little misleading because it's often what we see in big data is often akin to manipulation of desire. So it's not simply a prediction of what you're going to do in the future on the basis of your past behavioral data. Um, what a lot of algorithmics, uh, 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 algorithms do is actually manipulate you, your behavior in order for you to you know, buy certain things or create consumer desire. So on the one hand, we think it's like we discover patterns. On the other hand, it's a technology of engineering desire, engineering uh, consumer needs. And that's, in fact, an old law of marketing, and we may discuss that as, that as well. Finally, this is my last point. Um, I think there's a really important necessity to keep data open. And I really have, and I think Kelly raised that in her la one of her last remarks, I have really serious concerns about the proprietary nature of many uh, data companies, well, many data, data companies, and especially the algorithms which they use to mine data. Um, questions like, who owns big data? Who can trade them? Who's allowed to develop and, and explore these algorithms? Those are the questions that we should ask before, you know, well, or while these technologies are being developed. But those, I think, and Kelly, you're right in, in saying so, those are not the questions that we actually ask. We tend to focus on privacy issues, like how come that, you know, well, are we losing or privacy in, you know, whatever terms. But I think the bigger question here is how do these um, uh, underlying ideas about uh, surveillance and, and big data, uh, how do they actually trace us in, as, a nor as normative behavior? And I think they're really normative tools. So I think that's something we could uh, pick up in the discussion. So what I would like to end up with is um, surveillance, is sur surveillance is really not a question of either big brother or big money. I think that's really sort of an old-fashioned way of looking at what those data do to us and how we uh, treat data. Um, the belief that data are traces of our actual lives, um, I think it's sort of an uncritical acceptance of datafication as the leading paradigm that you know will usher us into the 21st century. And it really results, what it results in, that's the thing I would like to question, is our acceptance of that norm, that we are going to be directed by data and our interpretation of data. So the assumption that it's normal to be datafied and uh, to have datafication as our you know, common rule, sort of the common sense in a society where data are the norm rather than you know, uh, uh, actual human behavior, if we embrace it as a belief rather than you know, just one of the scientific paradigms that you might use or a scientific methodology to use to look at the world, I think that sort of raises the questions that we really should look at rather than just look at privacy. So I will leave it at that and then we come back to your question. So I, I think it's an incredibly helpful observation that we need a richer conversation in this space than Big Brother or Big Money. Uh, and for me, that resonates with one of the points you, you made earlier in all of this, which is the notion that there's no data collection without a purpose or an agenda in one fashion or another. But there's an interesting twist that sort of comes from that observation, which is to say that if we were to sit down with friends and colleagues at Facebook and sort of say, 
you're collecting all this data, we're very uncomfortable being under surveillance all the time, their response would be, that's not why we're collecting this data. We have no interest in your movements. We're not projecting whether you're a terrorist or trying to figure out you know, your sexual identity or so on and so forth. We just want to sell your stuff. Uh, does that in some ways, the fact that we're only collecting with a specific agenda, the fact that you're looking for something richer than the sort of big data, big money, does that actually in some ways end as a defense that you know, maybe that form of surveillance is not in fact the sort of political surveillance that we all have this sort of natural instinct to, to be worried about? Should, should we use this as a way of separating those two? I don't think Facebook would agree with you if you were saying, like, you know, we're, we're just here, we're just selling you a service, we're just giving you away a service, which is basically your point. Uh, Facebook is no longer a social network service. It is now a data company. And that is actually one of the things that I've been trying to point out. They've really made this switch in the past six years. They've become a data company. Actually, just last month, they uh, uh, were uh, engaging in a partnership have been uh, in a partnership with four data companies, Axiom being one of the foremost. And those are the biggest four companies in, in, uh, in data. And I think this is going to be the big alliance in the future. Kelly was actually talking about standardization, you know, standardization in terms of technology. But the interoperability of uh, data is a very big point here. You know, our medical data, our uh, survey, or uh, our behavioral data, our Facebook data, if they're all interconnected, well, you know, who's the owner of that? Right. And do we have any say in how these data are going to be connected? So that interlinking or interoperability between sets yeah. of data, I think, is a big issue. Nobody raises it. It's, and that's, I think, really a point that in the law, there is no legal protection of what you would ca- could call social patterns of data fight behavior. Nobody owns them. They're like nowhere. They have no borders. There's no uh, one national system that can protect them. So there's a host of questions that cannot even be asked because there's this gray legal area where it simply doesn't mean anything mm-hmm. to have them out there. Gorm, I wonder if you could react a little bit to this question of Facebook as data company, because you've put sort of three business models on the table, um, you know, selling the, the content, selling the service, selling the audience. This sounds as if we're even sort of moving into a, a fourth realm. I mean, Facebook obviously right now makes its money by selling the audience, selling the ads. You can imagine a theoretical social network, you know, you might even call it Twitter, uh, that runs really with very little advertising, very little direct marketing, but essentially assembling a massive behavioral data set that may in fact be their, their most valuable asset. Is that still part of an audience-focused version of this, or is this an emergent fourth market? Yes, I, I think so, because, uh, I mean, um, uh, all, all these purchases uh, of, of, of uh, media companies, of social networking companies, uh, YouTube, for example, companies that don't make a profit, but it, this is anticipated profits. Uh, so they have a, a, a database, or if you will. Uh, so then this is what, what I like with Jose's uh, take on this, because, uh, because I, I think the... The terms datafication and dataism, I mean, that's sort of a, a, an obsession with, with data. And I think this is, this is not only within these kinds of companies, social networking companies, I think we could also pose 
the wider question about societies because I assume uh, that in the US it's uh, the same like in Europe as uh, university teachers and professors we are uh, accountable to uh, national agencies of, uh, or that, that controls the level of our teaching etc. So this is also kind of, of, of a collection of data that are stored and uh, it's not big data maybe but, <laughs> but it's data so, so this is what, what I like with the concepts of dataism and uh, datafication. Yeah. Kelly, I'm wondering how this this question that, that Josie gives us about data and sort of predictability, this, this idea that there's a gap between the set of data that we're generating and actual human behavior. Uh, and that, of course, what's interesting about this is that even if, as my colleague Sandy Pentland asserts, we can predict most people's movements 80% of the time, um, there's nothing preventing us from me walking off the stage at the moment and you know going over to South Boston, which is something that I pretty much never do. Uh, so I'm wondering whether the sort of mass surveillance systems that in some ways you are concerned about and sort of urging us to, to hold back on are, are sort of a societal response to the sort of inherent unpredictability. Uh, that we sort of assume that everybody at that marathon is going to behave in more or less predictable ways. The runners are going to run across the finish line, the people are going to cheer, and that the cameras are for that sort of behavioral exception. Do we see that creeping into the digital media space as well? Is that sort of the next frontier looking for that anomalous pattern in the data? And do we have that chance to sort of say, no thanks, not going to do that in that space, even if, if we're sort of moving to losing it in the public space? Um, I think that there are obviously all kinds of um, research efforts to come up with um, anomaly detection and prediction of movements of people and what people intend to do. I mean, the... um, after the bombings here, um, Mayor Bloomberg sort of uh, wanted to highlight the fact that even though they were the uh, Sarnayev brothers had plans to come to New York, here's our really sophisticated system in New York, and we can actually we're even ahead of the game, and we can here we can kind of identify who is um, uh, you know what, what we can see kind of see when there's bags dropped somewhere and we can intervene and we can prevent things in advance and um, I think that you know the draw I like the point um, about the idea that we're just trying to find patterns and whatever patterns emerge from the data are what we will you know we're not really looking for anything in particular we're just going to kind of crunch all the data and the patterns will emerge that we need to be following and that's actually really not so we're, there's certain things things have to be designed in, questions have to be designed in, so looking for bags being dropped well, you're going to find a lot of bags being dropped um, and you're not necessarily going to find the per, so the, I, I think there is this there's a, there's a misplaced um, again, going back to another point that you made a misplaced sort of faith in the and the possibility of being able to predict everything that will happen and do it in advance and prevent it and you know that that can somehow happen and worth that it's worth um, installing and designing and developing and diffusing all of the technologies that need to you know for that to happen to me it just seems like you know the question I'm always trying to push up against is first of all you know then there's all kinds that there's a cost benefit 
of doing that. And then there's all kinds of then unintended consequences or intended or inadvertent consequences or repurposing that comes up later that's not necessarily part of the original intentions um, that we might not necessarily, you know, we might want to really question and debate. So, yeah, I mean, I think that um, certainly it's all of the things that are in the marketing domain get kind of, you know, they either come from or get or get pushed back out into the security domain. So, you know, all of these, the same questions come up. Sure. Natalie Jaramachenko was working on a wonderful piece. I don't know if she ever brought it to completion, but it was um, a set of sound-activated cameras in places that we tend to think of as conflict-ridden. And so the whole idea was when you heard a loud sound like an explosion, the camera would turn on and you would be able to see it. And her point was not to design the perfect surveillance state. Her point was cars backfire, even in war zones. You know, the people slam doors. You know, there's a lot of loud noises that are utterly banal and ordinary, you know, and that looking for that exception actually turns out to be a very challenging thing. Um, so we're going to open this up. We've got roughly half an hour, uh, although I know David is looking down on me to make sure that I say that we have, in fact, 25 minutes to have a conversation with the audience. I, I just want to remind you, uh, as you step to the microphones and raise questions, uh, questions are interrogative statements uh, that ask something of the panelists that they could respond to. Uh, they customarily end with a question mark. Sometimes there's an inflection and tone that rises at the very end of it. They are not in fact short speeches with your own reflections about this. They're an opportunity for you to engage with the panelists. And so if you have any questions that fit within those forms, please feel free to come to the microphones on both sides of the stage. Sir. I might have a question. Uh, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, I, that was I, very good. That was very good. You got the inflection right. I might. We could respond to it. That was terrific. Thank you. Okay. I tried to make it a question. Uh, I was wondering... Um, uh, this invitation to be data hermeneutics, and I kind of liked it. And in a way, uh, I was wondering how can that occur? Like, um, maybe I don't know whether it was an invitation for scholars to be data hermeneutics, and whether uh, we can do it by ourselves, or we need softwares, and whether maybe I don't know. I have a sense that maybe a lot of the data might be like kind of misused in reality because people don't want to be surveilled. And my second question is maybe like in relation to surveillance as surveillance. Is that how you pronounce it? And, and um, again, um, uh, there was Jose, um, uh, is that how you pronounce it? Jose. That said uh, something that we shouldn't look into uh, increasing surveillance. But then I wonder, what is the strategy for those that are practicing surveillance, do they have to like augment their surveillance as the surveillance augments? So those are my questions. So let's go to Josie first and then okay. and then Kelly specifically on the on the surveillance question. Okay, let me try to answer your question by giving an, an example. Just a couple of weeks ago I was talking to an information scientist who showed me a set of data that he had gathered from I think it was search data. He showed me the whole pattern and he said, this is terrific. I just looked at sets of data, uh, people looking at the word mortgage. And so the whole set of data showed up. And then he looked at those same data search six weeks later and three months later and six months later. And he was pointing out that he could see a pattern between first uh, 
people were interested in mortgages in their searches and then into uh, uh, interior design and then we're going to well finally they ended up after three months looking at garden uh, uh, stuff you know so he could basically point out a and of course that was the question he was asking he was looking for commercial entries into that data set I looked at the very same set of data that he pulled up on the screen and I saw very different things in that same data set. I saw mortgages first, then I saw bankruptcy after six, month, six weeks. After three months, I saw the YMCA showing up in that data set. So I sort of pulled out those data and circled them with blue rather than red. And we had the same set of data, totally, totally different interpretations of what they meant. And I think that comes to your questions of surveillance and surveillance. How do you pronounce that? Surveillance? Surveillance. Surveillance, so right. Surveillance. Yeah. I'm, I'm not entirely French sure. It's a, it's, a, it's a constructed term. So. Right. So, and that, I think, so I asked him, why do you look at those data in that way? He said, well, because, you know, I got those data from a commercial company who wanted me to look into. And I said, well, you can use them for other purposes. And this is a question of, for instance, either, you know, this wasn't a question of public health, but basically, you know, a social matter that we could use those data for. And he had never, that the very thought had not even occurred to him. Like, and this was like, this wasn't even, an, you know, a massive set of data. It was just a very simple, uh, I think it was simply a, a matter of hermeneutics. Okay, so um, on the question of surveillance, um, I think I've been thinking about this just in relationship to the um, Boston Marathon bombing investigation. And I did think it was kind of a unique moment that there was this sort of call to collect all of our video. I mean, I wasn't here, but everyone's video and images. I, I noticed on um, Twitter that the uh, Boston Police Department, it was there, they had a, a tweet that said confirming that there was a bombing, and four tweets later asking for everyone to submit video. It was literally within four tweets that they were asking for that. And I guess that was that represented something interesting to me. Like this is a unique kind of moment in the visual practices of investigations where they would, you know, I mean, obviously even with wanted posters, there's a kind of public call for everybody to participate. Um, but th that somehow they would also be gathering media, the investigators would be gathering media from everybody's monitoring practices that they're all engaging in. They, everybody just thinks they're there at the marathon, you know, capturing the moment in a kind of joyful way, and it turns into, you know, they become agents of the state involved in investigation. Um, but I do think that the idea, I mean, I get frustrated with the idea that somehow, like, the, the institutionalized forms of surveillance are the same as all of us participating, and there's, there's this level playing field. Because, And I think that the whole Reddit case was a good example yeah. of the fact that, you know, the, the crowdsourcing, they, they didn't identify, yeah. they didn't have the same capacities to um, sift through and, and the kind of um, organizational structure that would have to be put in place to really engage in an investigation in the way that you know, the state does and the way the state would have to do it. And that the fact that they, I mean, the fact that they didn't identify the right suspects <laughs> is, um, sort of demonstrates the state's surveillance capacity and also that, you know, identification is a messy process. But, I mean, that's what I've been thinking about specifically in the relation to that. I don't think surveillance creates this level playing field. Institutionalized forms of surveillance and the kind of 
apparatus that the, the institutions have for monitoring, it, we just, as individuals, don't have that, and collectively, don't. It doesn't amount to that. So. So um, uh, just a, a quick procedural note here. If the question for our session is, is not yet thoroughly burned into your brains, I, I think you can actually get it uh, online. Uh, actually, Brad, if, if we could cut this projector, because basically right now it's shining directly into our eyes, and with the light coming in from the side, it's also not actually helping us have an image on the screen. So if we can just turn that off at some point, that would be great. Let's go on to a question over here. Hi, this is a question following on from uh, Professor Gates's uh, comments, and I'm interested in um, how the collection of big data by government entities would um, feed into what Professor Bolin was saying about the inaccuracies of your data profile relative to yourself. And so what potential does the panel see for... Um, more systematic um, misrepresentation, misprosecution, um, uh, misuse of that investigative power by governmental agencies? Um, I would say there's always tremendous potential for, I mean, inadvertently, oftentimes, inaccuracies. And I mean, if you look, if you ever, you know, I mean, this isn't the state, but it's like the state. If you ever looked at your credit report, <laughs> it sort of, I mean, when I look at that, I always notice that it's compl- there's all kinds of strange things there um, that have to be cleaned up. That kind of points to our own kind of need to be concerned about this. But I think another thing that, you know, even if I think of the example of going through airport security, one of the reasons why it's a little bit of a, Tense process. I mean, mostly used to it. Most of us are used to it by now. But is because that any time you would have a feeling of discomfort about it is because you know they can get it wrong. You know you can end up in secondary inspection even though you have no malicious intents. Intent. So that creates this. You know, that's kind of a moment at which I think that you know we're all very much aware, even kind of unconsciously, of the fact that. The, this is this big data question. I mean, it's big data, and there's all kinds of inaccuracies built into it. Um, and there's all kinds of ways that it's not just like inaccurate data, but that you know maybe the algorithms for predictive analysis have some kind of you know bias designed in that can lead us to um, emerge to the surface as somehow, you know, inaccurately identified in one way or another. I mean, obviously it's not always about um, becoming terrorists, but becoming something that doesn't quite match how we view ourselves. I mean, I think that that's true. It's not exclusive to the state. It's true of the whole, all of the big data practices, I would assume. Gorham, it seems like part of what's interesting about this question is whether we could sort of choose to be playful with this. And, and I, I had a fun experience with this. My colleague, Doc Searles, has written a book on advertising and ad targeting and encouraged everyone to go to Rapleaf, which is one of the big ad targeting companies in the U.S. that collects data. And I went and I requested my profile, and I discovered that Rapleaf believes um, that I am unmarried, that I have no children, 
uh, that I make roughly one fifth of what I actually make as my income, and that I own and keep guns in my house, and finally that I'm staunchly Republican. Uh, and what's interesting about all of this is that within that data, there were also pieces that they got right, including the fact that I drive a pickup truck. And I've started wondering whether the fact that I drive a pickup truck has led them to ascribe these other pieces to it, and whether there's some way in which I could find other behavioral ways to sort of queer my data by by doing something you know atypical and it, it seems like in some ways your your daughters ended up doing this with 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 your spotify behavior yes but, but it's uh, i mean i think it, it's um important but well we can distinguish between uh, two types of surveillance the, the surveillance of the state and I, I know the feeling I'm, i know when you come to immigration <laughs> at logan airport you get that feeling did i did i fill in this form right or will i be held up for two hours here <laughs> explaining difficult things uh, I, I take the, the business instead of vacation, uh, and then I, I, I thought to myself when I entered the desk, oh no, was this a mistake? So this is the kind of reaction that you get uh, from, from uh, this kind of state surveillance. This is also a kind of react. There are also reactions we get from, from commercial surveillance, of course. Uh, but, what, but what I think is the difference is that, that to, uh, uh, state surveillance is, is after uh, to sort of prevent types of behavior. Uh, and as I said in my talk, that to the uh, media industry, it's... Uh, uh, it doesn't really matter as long as the system works and as long as uh, data are bought and sold and uh, the negotiations within this system of belief works, then uh, the, the thing works. But somewhere in the world, there is, will be uh, at this moment a conference similar to this with uh, marketers who are uh, struggling with this also and thinking, hmm, how, how should we deal with this data? So they are basically asking... <laughs> similar questions but from from their perspective of how could we monetize this this is messy data we don't know what to do with it but we are determined to make some bucks out of it <laughs> so yeah so hmm. uh, should we go over here for a question i have one question but i would like to ask it in two ways <laughs> the first way is a little bit more negative which is um to what extent do you think the Discourses that you've been studying are shaped by innumeracy or discomfort with mathematics. And then version two, a little bit more opportunity-based, is how might they be different if people were more comfortable with statistics and probability? Gorgeous. Two, two and they were actually both yeah. questions and, and both very helpful ones. <laughs> yeah, and very good questions. And I, um, I, It's one of the questions I should have raised, which is one of the... Uh, does it? Would it really help if we would... Uh, learn more about statistics, mathematics, but also about algorithms, in, in fact. And there's this whole, uh, I think, along with this discussion, goes the discussion with um, what are we doing about media literacy, but especially part of that is data literacy. Are we training people more in terms of how to interpret data, how to, uh, 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 well, how to um, really use data in a world that is very data-centered? I think those are really legitimate questions because, in fact, uh, you know, we know very little about uh, the, the questions, the real questions of quantification, and that's something we should really start to be more aware of. And just recently, I picked up discussions with mathematicians and, and information scientists, and it's totally intriguing of how in two different worlds you actually live and the kind of questions you actually can ask each other. So 
it's you put it in a you put a question mark behind this, but I think it's really it should be an exclamation mark. So, <laughs> but thank you for asking. Anyone else on this on this question of numeracy? I mean, it seems like in questions of terror and threat, sort of our numeracy about risk is an enormous piece right. of this. Right. I mean, I think that I, if you're asking whether, you know, we, I have an aversion to enumeration or computation or, I mean, I think that um, I've thought, you know, I've tried to kind of not, but I do, I clearly do, but I, I try to understand the kind of way it can be, the value. Um, and seek that out. But um, as far as in, you know, <laughs> I don't know how to answer the question in a sweeping way about, I don't, I don't think the problems that I identify with surveillance have to do with enumeration. I, that's not the villain or something, or the source of the problem that I'm identifying. Um, I think that enumeration is inevitable. It's sort of, you know, when you have societies of increasing scale, you need some, you need to, you have to do this or, or you know, you can't, I mean, there's so much value in it in helping, you know, for lo- lots of reasons, but obviously, yes, it would require, more people should understand um, how, you know, statistics and um, computational processes and mathematics and that would allow for more participation in a kind of discussion instead of relying on expertise, um, you know, too much re- relying on expertise. But. but do you think these discourses around more surveillance, I mean, do you think that, that Manju would be making the same point if we had, as a public, a better sense of how exceedingly rare public acts of violence are as compared to routine automobile fatalities, or even in this country, uh, shootings and suicides with handguns, uh, which is an enormous problem in comparison to a terrorist threat, but we generally don't look at comparative figures and, and, and statistics on. You know, it's an interesting question. It sort of also points to the power of visual images. And, um, you know, we didn't see the pictures of 20 kid, little six-year-olds. I mean, so, um, you know, I don't know if it, it can counter even the knowledge of statistics and kind of rational knowledge of what is more risky and more, much more of a problem. Can it really counter? That's a really good question, how to visualize that, you know, the other problems and make them as big as the visuals that come out of these statistically rare occasions, but that are so visually impactful. But it's also the gap that there is between the actual risk and the perception of risk. I think that's, you know, even if you're, you, you can be, a, you can be a, a, a super mathematician and not, you know, acknowledge that gap. And that, then you still have the same problem. I think the symbolism point's a really strong one as well. Let's go to our next question over there, please. I'd like to thank the panel for, for, for a very engaging session. I like it. And this is, I'm afraid, something that may sound more like a statement, but it's the type of statement that is a questioning statement. Um, uh, and it's about building off of the Spotify example and the pickup truck example. Um, I myself, I like, it's been a while since I've done it, but I like to go on Facebook and check in at invented places. You know, places that don't exist, but are the places I would like to see in the world. Like the First National Bank of Funk and Soul. Um, And what I'm wondering, and this is the statement-like question, or the question-like statement, is what the value might be, maybe it is a question, 
um, what the value might be in terms of the difficulties of this of big data of not just teaching people how to be better at analyzing it, how to be better at dealing with numbers, but how to be more active at messing it up. Yeah, so is there an intervention strategy uh, based on generating uh, the, the fanciful institutions we would like to see in life? And I, I would bank at the, at the Bank of Funk and Soul. I, I think that's, that's a wonderful thing. Anyone want to reflect on this? Well, again, I can start. Uh, again, uh, the, um, as, uh, there will be a, a sort of a breaking point where this system of belief, uh, the, the market uh, where... where um, those who pay for the um, access to media users will start doubting uh, the system uh, if enough people do that. Uh, so, so, so I think that. that but, but probably, uh, probably that won't happen that easy. That's my guess. I, so. My, my, my guess is you might see a switch to more expensive signals. Um, the fact that it's such a cheap signal to sort of say, I just checked in in the White House. You know, it is, you know, it's fine because right now basically that's irrelevant up to a point. You know, when it starts becoming I'm demonstrating my loyalty and, and that loyalty has uh, real fiscal implications, it probably gets a little harder to toy with that data. But, I, I mean, to throw the question around, right, I, we've, we've been under perpetual purchasing surveillance at any American grocery store for 20 years. There's been a customer loyalty card. Uh, and so far, I, I very rarely you know, buy pantyhose as a way of sort of complicating you know, what my gender is of my purchase, <laughs> while it would be a, a, a fairly playful way of, of, of going ahead and, and, and sort of having fun with that. And so I wonder again whether the question is right now these signals are so inexpensive that it's a great time to play, but, but whether that, that expense will remain at that level. Mm. Well, and it might create an, you know, it, it creates an expense for oneself if you're not able to be properly identified. <laughs> um, so when you, you know, I, I like the fact that I'm kind of a VIP at certain places. Um, and so that when, I, you know, they know me, and, or not they don't really know me, but they know me, and um, I get a kind of treatment because I'm a, valued customer. <laughs> I mean, I have to admit that that's a, and I, if I was screwing with that in some way and it disrupted that, then it creates this problem for, for oneself that, um, you know, we have to, I don't know, that, that, would, that would be a disincentive for actually doing it. Although I really like Gil's idea of, you know, checking in at imaginary places for sure. We're going to take a last quick question here. You have talked in the panel about the metadata attached to the uh, various data items that people consider. Are there any, and also about the uh, potential advantages or technological advances that could come of making, kind of standardizing how you're doing the metadata. Is there, are there systems for attaching metadata to the assumptions that people are using? or that are implicit in the algorithms they're using to interpret that data? And could that maybe uh, boost the interoperability of the ways we approach the conversations we hold about the results of those algorithms? Thanks. That sounds like a great idea. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how I've never really thought in those terms of adding metadata about the assumptions to the algorithms. and the <laughs> But... Um, you know, I think that part of what the interoperability, what I was talking about, and what I know of it, 
is about allowing there to be non-standardized metadata that still can be interoperable. Um, so how that would all work, it sounds like a really complicated technical question that I hope that technical people would be really open to thinking about. And I don't really know how to, I mean, that's, I love how you pose that question and I love that idea, but yeah, I'm not really sure how to respond exactly. I, I think we may see a group of people starting to share data on how algorithms behave. And I think one of the best communities actually to look at for this uh, is the SEO community, which is basically engaged in trying to figure out what Google's algorithm is yeah. so they can make it behave in the ways they'd like it to behave. But if you think about how that community shares data, it's really more by fable uh, than by experiment. You sort of hang out and, and you know, people will sort of pronounce, you know, make sure that there aren't the same text on two different sites because suddenly you will be you know, pushed down. And it would actually be very interesting to sort of say, here are the experiments, here's the metadata on the traceability, here's my environment, here's what Google does and doesn't know about me. Do we find a way to share in that fashion? Mm-hmm. Um, right now, uh, if you would share some applause with the panelists and thanks for their <laughs> contributions. Um, thanks to all of you for some great questions for being with us.